0: I have a question for you. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to ponder this word holiness. What comes to your mind when you contemplate the word holiness? Most people tend to think. Of the word holiness as something to do with those kind of dark monastery. Walls with organs playing and long ritual chanting and and prayers. And there's sort of this very austere feeling when most people think of the word holiness. Interestingly enough, there was a survey recently where people were asked to say, what image comes to your mind when you hear the word holiness? And let me tell you what people think of. Thinness. Hallowed-eyed gauntness beards, sandals, long robes, stone cells, no sex, no no jokes, hair shirts, that's really weird, frequent cold baths, fasting, hours of prayer, wild rocky deserts, getting up at 4 a.m., clean fingernails, stained glass, and self-humiliation." They don't know God, these people who answered this question. I'm sure none of those images came to your mind, right? When I mentioned holiness, please say they did not come to your mind. But most people, it seems, thinks that holiness is reserved for a group of monks or missionaries or priests or martyrs, and that is not at all what holiness is about. Holiness is about being set apart for God in wholeness, in completeness, in spiritual health or in in the fullness of health. When we think of holiness, actually we can think of thinking as, as God thinks, living, bringing our wills into what God's will is. It's about being wholly redeemed, um, broken parts being mended, being complete in God. Now, holiness is really, really matters to the Israelites right now because God's presence is dwelling with them. Last week, Jamie York was here teaching us uh, from the last part of Exodus, and she taught us about the presence of God dwelling with his people, and that's what's happened. The presence of God is now dwelling with the Israelites. They aren't in Egypt anymore. They are camped at the base of Mount Sinai God has chosen them to be his own people. He is revealing the reality of himself to them so they can reveal the reality of him to the rest of the world. And so he is teaching them about life. He's teaching them about the life that he created. He created this life for them. He created them to be in relationship with him. He's redeeming them from the brokenness of sin and slavery that they experienced when they were living in Egypt. He's given them their his commandments now so that they know what it looks like to live rightly, what it looks like to be a Mago day, to be human, to be created by God and living in community with him and with each other. They know the Ten Commandments. But he's also provided a way for them to receive forgiveness for their sins because he knows that they are not going to be able to fulfill the Ten Commandments perfectly. They are not going to have only um worship only God, they're not going to be able to live out all of the requirements of the law. And so he's made a way for them to experience forgiveness for their sins so that they can be holy as they dwell, as he dwells in their midst. Isn't that amazing? God has made a way for his called out people to live holy lives because there's going to be forgiveness for sin so that he can dwell with them. That's astounding. That's astounding. So God has moved into their camp at the base of Mount Sinai. He has now come to dwell in that tabernacle that they made, that we studied last week, the tabernacle, the details. You can see the picture of the curtains and and the lampstands and all of the incense and all of the fine detail that he gave to make this tabernacle. Now he is dwelling in this tabernacle. His glory has engulfed the innermost holy place so that now not even Moses can come near. Israel has officially now been set apart as a nation of his people. And because God is dwelling in their midst, they must now learn how to live in proximity with his holiness. And there's only one way. They, too, have to become holy. Now, it's interesting because in our world today, and most people, and including Christians, we are actually more concerned with happiness than we are holiness, right? And even believers, when we think about The Lord, we often want him to carry our burdens or to alleviate our pain or to solve our problems more than we actually want him to direct our lives and change our character. But God knows, he knows that true happiness comes or at least begins with holiness. That if we actually live lives in right relationship with him and with each other, that's how we're going to be truly happy. Now, the book of Leviticus is God's instruction manual for holy living, and it was given to the priests who were to be the leaders and the teachers of the people. And and it's true that not all the regulations of Leviticus that we studied this week that you probably either listened to or read and went, so much detail, I can hardly ingest what I'm reading. Um, But all of those don't apply to us today. But there are spiritual principles that do apply to us today, because we are also If you are in Christ, we have been also set apart, and we have also been called to live holy lives because we are in Christ. The key principle of Leviticus is found in chapter 1144, where God says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy as I am holy. And do you know that in the New Testament, verses from Leviticus are quoted over a hundred times? So this is not a book that was forgotten after Jesus came. We hear about these verses from Leviticus over and over again in the New Testament. It's so important. This is actually a treasure for us to apply to our lives. But let me just ask you, how many of you honestly have started a read-through-the-Bible plan and fallen off the wagon when you got to Leviticus, right? Because you start reading all of these offerings and sacrifices and rituals, and it starts to sound like ya la 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 and pretty soon, you know, you just think, well, this isn't relevant anymore to me, and so I don't need to keep reading this. It's not important. And at first, it does seem to be a strange book of celebrations and offerings and rules on cleanliness and all of that, but it's actually one of the most beautiful books of the Bible, and we're going to discover that as we look at these instructions that God gave to his priests— we're going to discover, guess what? We're priests. We too are ambassadors. We are, are called to be his representatives in this world. And it really does matter that we understand this, the God's word to his people in his time and apply it to our contemporary culture. We too have been set apart in Christ to enjoy an intimate relationship with God. And we too are called to be holy because God is holy. Just as God came to dwell within, among the Israelites, God has come to dwell within believers today through his indwelling Holy Spirit. So do you realize actually that tonight, and I'm going to say this especially for those AM class members, you are in the process of becoming holy right now because you are coming here and gathering around the word of God. And you are seeking to understand God's character through his word, and you are seeking to apply his truth to your life, and all of this is part of the process of being sanctified, of being made holy, of being set apart for him. Sanctification is the process by which we grow in our faith by yielding ourselves to the Holy Spirit, and that happens as we... We enjoy certain practices in our faith. So Bible study is one of those things where we come and we study God's word and we allow time for his spirit to speak into our hearts. We want to understand more about who he is. We want to respond to him and his word in obedience in our lives. It happens as we engage with in prayer, as we actually talk to him about our lives, as we actually ask things of him and worship him. It happens as we serve him. It happens as we come together in community, as we care for one another. All of these ways in which we engage with the Lord through all of these different means are part of how we become sanctified, how we become changed from the inside out to be more like Jesus. And so being here in Bible study is part of that. And of course, guess what? It takes the whole gamut of your life to be sanctified. I think, I hope that when we get to heaven, just what the Bible says, we see him and we are like him because you know, those of you who are even older than me, that it takes a lifetime and probably beyond to be changed from the inside out to be more like Jesus. Um, But what I want you to learn today from our lesson is that God's people are to be holy because God is holy. And so if you are one of God's people, and I am one of God's people, be encouraged that we are to be holy because God is holy. So we're going to look at the first half of Leviticus tonight. We're going to look at first chapters 1 through 7 where we see the the instructions for the offering. Then we're going to look at 8 and 10, which are preparations for the priesthood. Then we're going to look at 11 through 15, which are instructions for maintaining purity. So let's dive in. First, looking at instructions for the offerings. If you remember at the end of Exodus, which we studied last week, we learned that the tabernacle was now ready for use, and now God is giving the priests the instructions they need to offer these various sacrifices that are going to be offered in the tabernacle. In chapters 1-7, through we learn about five basic offerings, and these offerings, they're expressions of total dedication to God, and they were necessary for an individual person to maintain a relationship with the Holy God who is now dwelling in their camp. Each of the offerings not only met a specific need for the life of that person who is making the offering— But also they were pointing forward to a specific truth about the life and the work of the Messiah who was to come, who is Jesus Christ. So God, Jesus would be God's perfect once and for all sacrifice. So that's why as we look at these sacrifices, we're going to be looking at them. And then we're going to be looking at how they point forward to Jesus and how they're fulfilled in him. So in chapter number one, we have the burnt offering. This sacrifice expressed complete devotion to God. It was complete dedication. Um, the sacrifice had to be a male um, animal uh, uh, without blemish. It could be a bull, a sheep, or a goat, unless the person was really poor. And then it could be a pigeon or a turtle dove. And that, would be, that would be sufficient. In this sacrifice, the offerer had to lay uh, his hands on the head of the animal and confess his sins. And the sins would symbolically transfer from the person to the animal. And then the animal would be killed, and then the blood of that animal would be sprinkled on the altar, and then the rest of the animal would be taken away and cleaned and burned. This burnt offering is one of three sacrifices where Scripture tells us that um, it was a pleasing aroma to God in these sacrifices, which to us seems really gory and seems really gross, but Are we meant to think that God actually is pleased by the smell of burning flesh? That's not what we're really understanding here. What we're understanding, because God is spirit. God doesn't have a physical body. He doesn't actually have a nose. So it's not that he is physically pleased by the smell of blood and burning flesh. It's that he is pleased when man gives himself wholly to God. And this, this particular sacrifice is a sacrifice of wholeness, of dedication, of completeness. How does this relate to Christ? Well, Jesus Christ was a sacrifice without sin or blemish. He gave himself wholly in dedication to his Father. He completed the work. He left nothing undone. Ephesians 5.2 tells us that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In the New Testament, there's a parallel in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which actually challenges us as believers to also be living sacrifices to God. This is what Paul tells us. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we are to become living sacrifices through our obedience and our surrender to God in every part of our being. In chapter 2, we have the grain offering. So the grain offering could be presented in five different forms, a mixture of flour and grains and and heads of new grain. In essence, it was an offering of bread. What's so interesting is there's no blood involved in this sacrifice. We like this one, right? Um, Because this was a sacrifice that symbolized life and not death. And so the offerer was actually dedicating their everyday life to God with this sacrifice, and they were acknowledging that God was the one who who could be depended on to provide all of, of the necessities of everyday life. The grain offering always included three things, oil, frankincense, and salt, and part of the bread was put on the altar, and it was burned as a sacrifice to the Lord, and then the rest of the bread was given to the priests to actually feed the priests. Now this relates to Christ because Jesus in John 6.48 said, I am the bread of life. And in John 6.51, he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So the grain offering reminds us that the gospel is not just about the death of Jesus Christ. It's about the life of Christ, and it's about the resurrected life of Christ, that Christ died for you in order that he may live in you. So the grain offering is about life and the celebration of life, and the gospel is all about life, and Jesus was all about life. In chapter 3, we see the fellowship or the peace offering. It could be called either one. This was a voluntary offering, so the animal could be either male or female. This was the only offering that was then given in dedication to God and then given back to the worshiper to enjoy part of it in a feast or a festival or a party, gathering family and friends together. So in this offering... Um, After a portion of the meat, after the priest completed the sacrifice, the rest of the meat went back to the family to have a party, but the fat of the meat went to the Lord. And this was very particular because the fat always signifies the richness of the meat. You know that the fattier the meat, the more delicious and tasty it is, the more rich the meat is. So the fat would be given to the Lord, and that signified that all of the richness of life um, comes from the Lord and belongs to the Lord. But the rest of the meat could be enjoyed in fellowship. And so as people would then take this meat back to their families and have a big party, it was a big celebration signifying that that they were now at peace with God. So this fellowship and peace was between the worshiper and God and also between the worshiper and the rest of the community. Um, So there was peace with God and peace with others. And the purpose of this offering was to acknowledge that God had forgiven their sins And as a result, that's why people could be at peace with God and peace with each other because their sins had been forgiven. Now this relates to Christ, specifically as we enjoy fellowship with God through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. Because of his death, we have peace with God. And so we enjoy community with him, fellowship with him. Um, And because we are at peace with God, we actually have the ability to live at peace with other people. In Romans 5.1, it says, "...therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ." One of the ways we remember this today is with communion or with the Lord's Supper. Different churches call it different things, but in this case we're coming together, remembering the cross, we are acknowledging that we're at peace with God, that we've been forgiven of our sins, and we do it in community with each other, so there's a sense of fellowship and coming together. So that's one of the ways in which we do something similar to remember the same truth. Chapters 4 and 5 talk about the sin offering. Now the sin offering, this is so interesting. We were talking about this in our leaders meeting. It's kind of astounding, but the sin offering was offered for unintentional sins. Did you know that these are sins that are committed out of ignorance or accident, but they're not for sins that are committed from willful defiance or rebellion? There actually wasn't a sacrifice For willful defiance and rebellion. If you willfully defied God and you rebelled against Him, you just threw yourself on the mercy of God because there wasn't a sacrifice um, prescribed for that. Notice that in this sin sacrifice, there are different types of animals sacrificed depending on the person's wealth and position. And so those who had greater privilege and responsibility had to bear the consequences of sacrificing a more precious animal for their sins. So, for example, a young bull would be sacrificed for high priests and for the congregation. A male goat would be if you were a leader. A female goat if you were a common person. A dove or a pigeon if you were a poor person. And then just flower if you were a very poor person. But what's most interesting about this sacrifice is that there are different instructions given on what to do with the blood. So, in that's based on what, who you are. So, if you're a, a priest who sins accidentally or intentional, or accidentally or out of ignorance, then the blood was sprinkled seven times before the Lord on the altar, and then it was put on the horns of the incense, which actually um, stood. Outside the veil of the Holy of Holies. But if you were just a regular person or a leader, then the blood was put on the bronze altar, which is outside the the outer court, uh, outside in the outer court. And the whole idea of this is this is so interesting because this display of blood before the presence of God reminded the person who is the sinner that God no longer looks at the sin, he looks at the blood that was shed for the sin. And so this signified that there was complete forgiveness and complete release from guilt. God had every little detail so particular in how he was teaching his people about sin and forgiveness and holiness and all of these sacrifices. Now, how does this relate to Christ? No animal actually takes away the sins of a human heart. All of these sacrifices pointed towards the perfect once and for all sacrifice in Christ. Jesus is our sin offering. He is the only one who can provide that satisfactory, substitutionary sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. He's the only one. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets or the sacrifices, but he came to fulfill them. And just pausing for a moment, aren't you so glad that you don't have to sacrifice an animal for your sins? I mean, aren't you so thankful that you don't have to take a goat or a lamb or a pigeon or whatever it would be and go and slaughter it and shed its blood because of your unintentional sins? I mean, not even to mention the intentional sins, right? I don't even know how aware we are of our unintentional sins because we're so aware of our intentional sins. We're so aware of our rebellious heart. Well, the last offering is the guilt offering. And this offering was needed when a person unintentionally sinned against God or another person and then damage or loss occurred in some way. So... The examples that are given is a, a person has a guilty silence, meaning that someone doesn't speak up when they should have spoken up about something that they knew was an, inf- an offense. Or someone became in contact with something unclean. Um, it was an ecological violation that would threaten everyone's health if someone touched something unclean. Um, or someone made a rash vow or an oath. Um, they, they were unintentionally arrogant or presuming upon the grace of God. So the unique thing about this offering is that it required a restitution. So after confessing the sin, the offering, the offender had to actually repay 20% a fine for the value of the goods that were damaged in this situation. Now this is interesting because this sacrificial offering illustrates how costly it is for people to commit sin and how costly it is for God to cleanse our sin. Because our sin actually hurts God, and it actually hurts other people, we actually should have a desire to make things right with God and to make restitution for the damages that occur because of our sin. And of course, we know that we can only make things right with God by receiving his forgiveness through his son, Jesus it's only through the, the, resu- the death and resurrection of Jesus that we are forgiven of our sins, which is why Romans 8.1 is one of my favorite verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's the truth that I think we can learn from these, these offerings, these instructions for offerings. Your life and my life will grow in holiness as we cultivate our relationship with God through Jesus Christ we will naturally grow in holiness as we maintain and cultivate our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Israel was a nation that was holy and set apart for God. And so God instructed them how they were able to live with him in their midst midst by maintaining relationship through these various offerings where they could become aware of their sin and they could be forgiven for their sin. So they had this acute sense of God's holiness and how far short they fell and what was needed to bring them back into relationship with holy God. But we too are set apart for God, except in our situation where we live on this side of the cross, God has already provided the way himself for us to live in holy relationship with with him through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So He has actually provided the sacrifice for us, and all we need to do is just say, "Yes, Lord, I agree," and we are are considered holy because Christ is holy, and the sacrifice has already been made, and we're forgiven of our sins, even our intentional sins. In in all of these offerings. As we look at them, they have all been fulfilled in Christ. So the burnt offering, tell, is, we know that Jesus is all that we need. It's the total, complete sacrifice. So he is all that we need, and we can yield ourselves wholly to him. The grain offering, we see that Jesus is the bread of life, and so we feed upon him and upon his word. The fellowship offering, we know that Jesus is our our joyful feast. He is the one that we enjoy fellowship with, and because of him, we have peace with God. We have shalom. The sin and guilt offerings, we know that Jesus is the one who actually bore our sins in his body and paid the price in full for our personal sins. So when we believe that Jesus, when you believe that Jesus died for your sins, and you receive forgiveness for your sins, then your debt against God is paid in full, that's the first step in entering into a relationship with him. It's just agreeing that he is the sacrifice, that he has made the ultimate offering, and that all we do is we lay down our hard hearts and we say, yes, Lord, I believe. But beyond that, I want to ask you, how do you cultivate a relationship with God through the course of your life in a relationship with Jesus Christ? So how do you enjoy his daily presence? How do you live in fellowship with him? Coming to faith in salvation is just the beginning. The rest is the life that's lived out in this relationship. How do you cultivate that relationship in your life? Think about how do you cultivate your human relationships. Think about that. So you're in a relationship with your husband or a boyfriend or a child or a roommate or whatever it would be. Think about that relationship. How do you spend time together? How do you share interests How do you study the other person's personality and character? How do you express affection? It's the same way in our relationship with God. Um, Think about how do you spend time with him in prayer, talking to him, communing with him? How do you care about the things that he cares about, which you only know as you study his word? How do you learn of his character through Bible study? How do you express your affection to him through praise and worship? How do you serve him? How do you use your gifts to bring him glory? See, I think often we think we have to check a lot of boxes in order to feel that we have this real relationship with God. And, but I just want to challenge us to think that this relationship isn't a relationship full of checked boxes. It's not a like go to church and have a quiet time and this type of relationship. It's a living relationship where you actually enjoy him. You enjoy walking through life with him. He is God and you are his daughters. So how might you enjoy your relationship with him more by cultivating and maintaining a a deeper intimacy with him? What would it look like for you to become more whole, holy, but whole in your relationship with God, more healed from your brokenness, more redeemed from past hurts and sins, more restored to the person that he created you to be, more spiritually healthy by how you nurture your soul? The secret to a life of holiness— Wholeness and inner health is in maintaining a personal relationship with Holy God, and how astounding that He invites us to have a relationship with Him, especially as we get a glimpse of how truly holy He is. Well, let's go on and look at how He prepared the priesthood by looking at eight, and t- eight through ten. Chapter eight is a very special day for Moses because it's the day where his brother Aaron, who is a Levite, and Aaron's four sons, Moses' nephews, are going to be ordained for the priesthood. Now remember all that elaborate clothing that was sewed last week? Remember the gems and the gold and all the fabrics that were put together? Now they get to wear that. They get to put that on their bodies. They're going to be consecrated and commissioned by God for this holy position of leadership among the Israelite people. Now, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God had a holy priesthood. But in the New Testament, under, under the New Covenant, um, God's people are a holy priesthood. So that's why we're going to pay attention to the ordination of the priests, because now we are a holy priesthood. In 1 Peter 2.5, it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And 2 Peter 2, 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So in chapter 8, there's a big... Celebration going on. This is an impressive public event. It lasted for seven days. It was public because the priests are not only going to be serving God, but they're going to be serving the people. And I want to stop here and give you a warning because what we are going to see here is that it is a serious thing to be set apart for God for ministry. And it must be done under God's authority and it has to be witnessed by God's people. In Israel's day, being a priest of God was not a casual matter because everything that they were doing was foreshadowing the Messiah who was to come, who would be the ultimate priest. So they had to do everything exactly as God was prescribing because they were everything they were doing was pointing ahead. So when the Messiah came, the people would recognize, oh, of course, that's him because they could see the pattern that was set back in this day. So, as the priests would make atonement for the sins of the people using animal sacrifices, they would be setting the stage for the one who would come and shed his own blood on the cross for the sins of the world. It's interesting how Aaron and his sons are prepared so particularly on this day. So, first they're washed. In chapter 8, their bodies are, are cleaned. And then those glorious robes are put on their bodies. They're dressed. And then they're anointed with oil, so they're consecrated to the Lord. In the Bible, oil is always a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and so just as the oil was used to set apart the priests and the tabernacle for God, in the same way the Holy Spirit sets apart believers from death and seals them unto God. Did you know that the word Messiah in Hebrew and Christ in Greek means anointed one? So both terms that we use to describe Jesus mean the sense of being anointed by the Holy Spirit— as the ultimate priest to do God's priestly work. So then after that then this then a sin offering was made for the forgiveness of Aaron's son, sins and his son's sins. So they laid their hands on a bull and they confessed their sins and the bull was killed and the blood was sprinkled on the altar and and it showed that their sins had been cleansed and forgiven by God. Interestingly, um, there was blood on their garments as well, and it just indicated that, that their bodies and their clothes were now never to be considered common anymore. They were forever consecrated to God. This was their; They now belonged wholly to God. Then Aaron blesses the people, and I wanted to pull out this blessing for you because it's one of the most beautiful words that are spoken as a, a priestly blessing in Israel. It actually is found in Numbers, Chapter 6, verses 23 through 26. You might have heard this before. This is what he said. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Have you heard that before? Can you imagine a more beautiful image than the image of God turning his face to you, inclining his ear to your voice, smiling down upon your life, Looking into your heart. And do you know the Bible tells us that the Lord is actively looking throughout the earth for those whose hearts are turned towards him. It's one of my other favorite verses in Second Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. It's a beautiful part of this passage. Well, then, the next thing that happens is then God's glory consumes the offerings. It says, And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And the fire came down from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Can you imagine what that was like? This fire to come down from heaven. And to be so moved by this scene that you fall on your face. It seems the last time the glory had come down was when Moses had um, finished building the tabernacle. And now it's coming down again as the priests are being dedicated. And this fire coming down tells the people three things. First, it tells them that, that God has accepted their offering. So this has been satisfying to the Lord and the sins are forgiven. It tells them also that the priests are accepted for their work, um, so they're they're gonna they're right where they need to be. And the third is it tells him that God's presence is with them, that He is with them. And it's interesting that the people are not only joyful, worshiping Him, but they're they're also falling on their faces. I can imagine that at that moment, the same glory that they saw in the worship of the fire also made them tremble with the fact that that. Same fire could consume them in wrath if they were to be unholy before God. What a powerful, powerful moment. See, God, what God has done is He has made them aware of sin by giving them the law. And he has taught them about the sacrifices. In the sacrifices, he's taught them that the wages of sin is death. So now they know what sin is because they have the law and now they know what the cost of sin is, which is death, the life of an animal being poured out in death. And so through the offerings, he's teaching them these really important truths. All right, powerful, powerful moment. So what happens next is utterly shocking. Chapter 10 of Leviticus. How could Aaron's sons have seen all of this and then defied God by making an unauthorized sacrifice. How did that happen? As we move into chapter 10, we see that Aaron's two sons, they fail to give God the proper reverence, and as a result, they lose their lives. And here's the next warning I want to give you, and that is that it's a very serious thing to be consecrated to God, and God will not be mocked by our carelessness, rebellion, or disobedience. So this was a day which should have ended in glorious celebration, and instead it ends with a funeral. Two of Aaron's sons are killed. What went wrong? Let me tell you what went wrong. First of all, they were the wrong people to be handling the incense and presenting it to the Lord. This was a task that was supposed to be done only by their father, the high priest, according to Exodus 30. They had the wrong instruments in their hands. So they were using sensors, fire sensors, that were their own sensors, where the only censor that was um, acceptable to bring the fire into the tabernacle was the censor that belonged to the high priest, their father, because it had been anointed. They also acted at the wrong time. It was only one day a year on the annual day of atonement that the high priest was permitted to take the incense into the Holy of Holies And even then, he had to go through a whole ritual, which we saw in Leviticus 16. They acted under the wrong authority. They didn't consult Moses or their father. They didn't even seek to look at the word of God or know what God's instructions were. Instead, they just acted under their own authority. They thought, we're priests. Great. Grab the fire. Let's go to the temple. They just became, they were too big for their own britches. Let's put it that way. They used the wrong fire, it says in chapter 10, verse 1. He calls it unauthorized fire. So the the high priest was commanded to burn incense on coals taken from the brazen altar, but Nadab and Abihu supplied their own fire, which God rejected. They acted out of the wrong motive, so they didn't seek to glorify God alone. The motive of their hearts was not about honoring God. I wonder if they weren't Filled with some sort of pride being newly anointed priests. I mean, imagine the celebration that's gone on, the beautiful clothes that they're wearing, the, the acceptance of God the sacrifices, the display of God's glory, the people in revelry. I mean, you can just imagine this is a really big deal, a feast that's lasted seven days. Could it been that in that moment they were feeling prideful about their new position as priests among the people? They're the first ones. But the last thing is that they depended on the wrong energy because verses 9 and 10 apply that they uh, were potentially under the influence of alcohol, which would have made a lot of sense about why all the other things went wrong. So a moment ago, this fire from God came down and consumed the sacrifices and displayed God's approval of this moment. And in the next moment, fire from God comes down and consumes Aaron's two sons in wrath. Wow. Now, you might be thinking, well, why did God do that? Why did he so swiftly kill them? Why did he not give them grace? Why did he not forgive them and give them a second chance? Where was the mercy? I mean, they're brand new, a priest. Maybe they didn't really know what they were doing. But the truth is, is that God is so concerned with the attitudes of our hearts. And so we know that God knows the attitudes of these two young men's hearts. Let me tell you a few things that we do know. They were educated and experienced in the things of God. They had seen God up on the mountain. So earlier, God invited two of Aaron's sons to go up on the mountain and be, to hear God's voice and receive God's instructions, and they were only these two sons. He had four sons. The other two weren't invited. Only these two were invited. I think that God knew that they were going to have a future temptation and that they needed to know God and be in his presence so that they could resist the temptation to be prideful and arrogant in this moment. He gave them a special grace on that mountain. They had enough knowledge and experience to revere him appropriately. It is such a serious thing to be a servant of God and God will not be mocked. The priesthood of Israel, God was setting a model that would be followed for generations and generations to come. Today, we're 3,500 years past this moment and We are drawing strength in our faith by looking back at what God did with his people Israel. I mean, it is so important. What happened then is so important to the faith of all future believers. Because if you're like me, the more that you study what happened in the Old Testament, the more your faith soars with how absolutely perfect every detail of God's plan was in bringing Jesus the Messiah to fulfill all these laws and sacrifices. It mattered that they obeyed him. God's leaders were not to be hypocrites. They were to lead the people with holy surrender and personal integrity. So the truth is is that it is a serious thing to be a servant of God. It's a serious thing to be a servant of God. Our service to him needs to be empowered by his spirit, and it needs to be controlled by his word. And we must serve God in his way with reverence and godly fear. And thank goodness there's forgiveness and there's mercy for when we make mistakes— but God sees our hearts, and he will not bless indifference or pride or defiance towards him. So let me ask you, this is a sobering chapter. How serious are you about your service to God? In whatever way in which you're serving. Could be many different ways, in ministry, out of ministry, in your workplace, in your family. Anything that you are doing for the glory of God, how serious do you take that? How careful are you to watch over the hypocrisy of your life? When you say that you're a believer in Christ and then you act completely differently, what, how do you feel about that before the holiness of God? Are you consciously choosing to serve God with holy surrender and personal integrity? Are you depending on his Holy Spirit for empowerment and leaning on his word for wisdom and direction? What could God be doing through your worship and service to him today that may have a ripple effect on many people's lives, and yet you may never know what that ripple effect is? Are you okay with the fact that you may never know? And are you willing to serve him nonetheless? The privileges of ministry bring with them serious responsibilities, and Luke twelve forty eight says, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to wit and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. It's a sobering chapter with principles for us to apply right now in our lives today. This last section is really fast, so I'm gonna, but I want to touch on it because it's instructions for maintaining purity. You've heard the saying: cleanliness is next to godliness. I have that running in my head every time I look at my messy house. I think this is ungodly. But for the Jews, cleanliness and godliness were so intertwined. They were almost synonymous. Um, so in this next section, God is, is instructing his people about how to maintain personal purity. And this is vital to, the, to them now because he's living in their midst. And so they have to uphold cleanliness in order to achieve godliness. Chapter 11 is about eating clean and unclean foods, so God is the one who decided what's clean and unclean. We don't know always why he decided to make that distinction, Um, but we do understand now many years down the road that there were certain things that were just health restrictions for them. We understand now that there are things that have diseases and such that would have been harmful for them, so he has great wisdom in giving them those instructions. These dietary restrictions um, also served to separate them from the neighboring nations, so they were becoming more and more distinct people. They didn't eat certain foods. We know now that we think of the Jewish people as a people who eat kosher. They don't eat certain foods. The verse that is the key verse for Leviticus comes out of this chapter, Leviticus 11:44. Be holy because I am holy. Now, we know that... Um, Today, we don't have a list of clean and unclean foods. On the other side of the cross, Jesus made it clear that all foods are considered clean spiritually to eat, but the principle still exists that um, we are to be separate from things that defile us. So even though all things are not considered unclean in the way they were in that day, there are still things that we can do and see and ingest and eat and drink that bring defilement into our bodies. So the question we want to ask ourselves is, is there something that we do, that we eat, that we drink, that defiles our bodies? 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, you were bought at a price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That principle still applies to us. Chapter 12 is about purity after childbirth, so this is kind of gross, about the bleeding discharges of a mother after a baby is born, and there's this period of time Um, where she has to go through an extra measure of cleanliness before she can return to normal life. But this is God's grace because this was his protection that a mother got a rest after she had a baby because women did a lot of hard work in this culture. And so for her to have a rest, a time to be separate from her household duties, she got a chance to recuperate. It protected her from infection and from sickness. And we know as we look forward in Scripture that God has a loving concern for his family. He lo- he's loving concern for mo- mothers and children. Um, his laws are for the health and protection of his own people. Now the next thing, 13 and 14, is infectious skin diseases. If you remember back, he, God had promised... Um, had told Moses that as the people journeyed through the wilderness, that he would protect them from diseases if they obeyed him. So here he's giving them all these instructions for how to care for various diseases, even molds and mildews. Did you know that the priests were actually the public health officials? They're the ones who um, instructed the people how to solve their medical problems, which was really interesting. Um, So skin diseases, things like leprosy, are a picture of sin. There's a lot we can learn from just looking at how God instructed his people to deal with leprosy because leprosy in scripture pictures sin. So God shows us how to deal with sin in our lives. Let me give you some metaphors. Like sin, like leprosy, sin is more than skin deep. It's not something you can rub a topical cream on. It's something that's like a cancer cell deep within the body. And so it's deep in the soul. Like leprosy, which spreads throughout the body and distorts actually the function and appearance of the body, sin spreads and leads to defilement and death. Like leprosy, which requires a person to be quarantined from society, sin isolates people, It breaks relationships with people, and it breaks relationship with God. It causes great loneliness and hardship. And because God knows the depth and pain associated with sin, he gives instructions to his people how they can avoid that pain and how they can be cleansed. And we know that that comes from knowing God's word, obeying his word, and being cleansed by the blood of Christ. Chapter 15, lastly, talks about bodily discharges, which was actually even grosser, um, Talks. Some are natural discharges, like a woman's monthly flow or a man's semen. Some are unnatural, such as diarrhea and discharges from venereal diseases and hemorrhaging. And all of these things, it says those things, the first set of things, you just need to go through a ritual of cleanliness. But the second set of things need a ceremonial um, cleansing. So why was God concerned about all of this cleansing? That's probably what you're thinking. What did it matter? Well, in chapter 15, verse 31, God said, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. So these commandments regarding personal purity were vital to their health and protection of the community. And if the people did not obey them, they would be cut off and cast out into isolation in the desert. Now today we don't have these kinds of restrictions, but the principle still applies that there should be no area of our life that we aren't committed to purity to spiritual cleanness, so to speak, that we should we should every part of our bodies, every relationship, every aspect of our lives should be brought under into God's presence and under his control. His words still hold true for us be holy as I'm holy so here's the truth, the last truth I want to give you tonight. Your life will grow in holiness as you prioritize inward and outward purity. It will happen if you prioritize inward. That's your spirit, your soul, your thoughts, your mind, your attitude. And outward it's what you do with your body. If you prioritize purity, you will grow in personal holiness. It is so hard to live up to this in today's culture. I think about our poor teenagers If a teenager makes a commitment to not drink and not do drugs, if a teenager wears a purity ring and she says, I'm not going to have sex till I get married, or he says that, they are considered societal outcasts. They don't have friends. They're considered weird, odd. They don't fit in. In Israel's day, if you were impure, you were cast out. In our day, if you choose purity, you are cast out. And so we have to to model purity for the next generation. Outward purity means treating our bodies with respect in areas like personal cleanness, healthy living, abstaining from inappropriate sexual relationships or unhealthy practices. You know what your temptations are for unhealthy practices in your own life. Inward purity is how we treat our minds and our souls with respect It happens as we watch over what we see, what we think, what we read, um, what we watch. Um, We have to guard our hearts and our minds. And so I have to ask you, what area of your life do you need to prioritize growing in either outward or inward purity? The next time that you're tempted to defile yourself by what you eat or drink or see or say or think will you memorize leviticus 1144 where god's exhortation is be holy because i am holy so leviticus reminds us that god is holy He's so holy holier than we thought and he has made a way for us to be holy and to be in his presence through a relationship with jesus christ so we are already positionally set apart. So in Christ, you are holy. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You can't change your position before him. It's finished. What you can change is your devotion before him. It's your daily living practices. It's how you live out your life. It's what you model to others. It's, it's, it's the, the personal devotional holiness that delights God. When you set yourself apart, and you say, you know, because I'm, relational, because I'm positionally already in relationship with you, I now want every aspect of my life to glorify you, and I want to be a light in the darkness, and I want, to, I want to be a voice for the gospel, and I want to live out devotionally what is already true of me positionally. And so let me ask you, how is God working in your heart to call you into greater personal holiness? Let's pray about that. Father, we are so touched by these chapters in Leviticus because we are seeing you as we rarely see you, which is in beautiful holiness, where you are so lifted on high. You are so powerful and so sovereign and so perfect in your plans and purposes. You are so just in judging sin, and you see our hearts, and you call us to live in righteousness not just to be righteous, but to live in righteousness. And so, Lord, we're so thankful that you have reminded us of who you are. And yet, oh, Lord, we're so thankful that we come boldly into your presence through relationship with Jesus Christ, that we are forgiven, that we have grace, that you are patient and kind and slow to anger and steadfast in love, that you welcome us into your presence as daughters of the King, that you call us beloved. And we're so thankful that we enjoy this relationship with you through Jesus. But thank you that you have taught us what it really means to be in Christ by looking back. And I pray, Lord, that for each of us tonight that you would just tap on our hearts and spotlight an area in our lives where we can make some correction to live out a more holy, pure, clean, and God-honoring life to bring you more glory and for our greater good. Thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.